Welcome to Beer and Gear with Felix and Wes. Brought to you by Highway Marketing. So, Chris, what we do on this thing is basically, like we said, uh, like I told you, it's a it's a beer and gear. So I'm going to crack open my first beer. And we usually start these things. Oh, hello. The first beer on camera. He's probably hmm. on the fifth one. Oh, 100%, 100%. So you told me to come prepared uh, yeah. and be smart about my pick. So I went like old school and I'm going to, I was going to brown bag it. Nice. Right. And, uh, I, I, you know, I wanted to make this special. So I got some Colt 45, <laughs> I, you know, um, wow. not really. I, I did this as a gimmick. I figured it was worth it. Um, That's so beautiful. <laughs> no, I have three choices. So you guys get to choose what I'm going to drink first. Oh, sweet. So I'm uh, familiar with uh, New Belgium's Voodoo Ranger yep. series. So mm-hmm. they get the Juicifer, which is really good. Yeah. Uh, Juicy Haze IPA and the uh, Experimental IPA. So which one should I start with first? I would say Juicifer if it was me. That's where I would go. Sounds good. That's, yeah. that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, I have a lovely local uh, Armadillo Ale Works, uh, Honey Please, which is a mesquite bean blonde. Interesting. Yeah, if you can see that, yeah, it's uh, actually local in my tiny little town. I live in a college town, Denton, Texas. Uh, University of North Texas is here, the biggest jazz school in the world. The only uh, the only school band I think to ever win a Grammy, which is interesting. interesting. Yeah, it's a big music town, but we're tiny, you know. So we have like one brewery here. But it's very good. We'll see. We'll see how the episode goes and whether we end up cracking this uh, Colt Forty Five. How's that? <laughs> it could go either way. Uh, I'm- <laughs> I'm really happy with this one um, because I bought it today and it's a case of friends helping friends. um, Friends collaborating with friends to help other friends. Um, It's called Hell Yes. It's a a Hellas. Mm -hmm. And it's by a local brewery, the ABGB, Austin Beer Garden here in Texas. Oh, yeah. Nice. Um, I love these people because they actually have a stage. Uh, I performed there before. I've been to shows there and they treat musicians very well. Uh, hospitality. The pizza is amazing in there. But this one in particular, the artwork is created by Chaka, a local rapper from a group called Riders Against the Storm. And it all um, proceeds go to Dawa Fund, which is a group that, oddly enough, it started late 2019 to help um, basically raise funds to help people of color who are musicians or um, health practitioners or people that are going through, through, through financial issues. And of course, they actually got to do a lot of the work last year in particular. Uh, it's kind of like they, they predicted a pandemic. So uh, I saw this came out like two weeks ago and I was like, I got to get this for the show. So I nice. actually stopped in today and grabbed a four Very pack. Cool. Might need yeah. four more. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll drop that. Uh, we'll drop a link to them in the show notes. That's yeah, cool. that'd be great. That's very cool. So, uh, Chris, um, so you you had the very professional uh, bio that you sent over, which you know <laughs> proves that you're a real podcaster, unlike us. Uh, so you sent over that nice uh, that nice bio, and it, I I knew this about you before, but you got started in this because your dad, right? So tell us a little bit about how that started out. Yeah, so the the joke I typically say is I've been I've been gig, gigging since I could walk, 
And um, it's, I mean, almost true. Um, yeah, my dad was doing the kind of the bar band scene when he was in college, you know, mixing for cover band and stuff. Didn't really know what he was doing, kind of figuring it out. Um, and then when I came around, uh, you know, he was mixing in church um, or there was like a, a like a Christian blues band um, that, that was some of the guys from the church. Uh, so every weekend I was putting gear in the back of a station wagon or, or a truck or whatever, doing gigs in like coffee houses, VFW halls. Um, you know, I have a picture that I often share that I'm about maybe 10 years old, uh, running lights at the show. And that was, that was, that band had been together for four or five years at that point, uh, and that picture. So yeah, it's just kind of been in my blood, really. I've, I've just always, I, I don't know, I've always been gigging. It's all, all I've ever done. There it is. That, yeah. Yep. That's the picture. <laughs> yeah. When I was researching, I went on the website and I saw that. And then I saw the picture of your dad mixing. I was like, that's really cool. The, like, that one of the coolest cool. parts of that picture um, is there's a under the white fan, uh, which my dad always had a fan at front of house because it was always sweating. So we always had a fan. Um, th- there's a Roland Space Echo that's underneath of that um that fan i have that role in space echo still to this day it's in my office at at, at work so it's it's pretty cool nice it works um i think it needs some help it needs some love but it turns <laughs> on um but um i can't get it off uh it, it, the, the repeats don't work but um it at least at least turns on so with yeah. a little love it'll work yeah it'll it'll re- return to its nice noisy self that's amazing <laughs> for that guy. actually the tape the tape is actually not too bad. Um, like, um, at least when I was a kid, my dad replaced the tape. So, I mean, it has a somewhat fresh tape in it. So mm-hmm. I'm actually curious to get it going at some point because it'd be fun just to mess with again. Yeah, I had a Space Echo for a while and it's just it, just it in line and anything is just super noisy. But it adds this when when it's going when it's doing its thing. It's very cool. So, yeah. Definitely and it's a it. it's a 101 which is an older one right so wow. yeah yeah mine was a 201 i think oh yeah yeah. Was, yeah 101s are pretty rare mm-hmm. uh, not rare in a sense of valuable just rare in a sense that because they were kind of the first generation so right. yeah very cool very cool so you went from there to maryland sound is that is that kind of your first um yeah so i mean you know like through high school working with buddies bands um you know we're, we had a local guy a production guy that my dad and i did shows for and then yeah you know high school didn't go so well for me uh, i'm a high school dropout you know <laughs> i had to decide like what i was going to do and it's like you know my dad and i had always like thought about like oh it'd be cool to go on the road and do all this stuff and it's like, oh, well, maybe I can actually do this, you know, like, you know, um, and uh, so it's like, well, how do I get into the business? I didn't know how to get into the business. And this is like pre, you know, pre-social media and all that stuff. So I was like, well, I guess I got to go to school for it. Um, so I went to a recording school locally in Baltimore. I'm originally from Maryland. Um, and, you know, the the whole school thing, it's there are different purposes of why you should or shouldn't go to school. And we probably, you know, that's a whole nother podcast episode in of itself um but nonetheless it was good for me because it got me my connection with maryland sound and so it got me in the door with maryland sound and so i was with maryland sound for about seven years and got to tour all over the world and do some large events and so it was it was worthwhile so that was maryland sound was my first um big time gig if you will it wasn't obviously my, my first paid gig but this big gig right right well so who did you uh who did you end up working with when you were at Maryland Sound? I mean, that's a that's a big company. 
yeah, big company. Uh, they've been around since uh, late 60s. Uh, a couple of tours I did, um, like some of the earlier stuff with some like hip hop and RB was like like Bow Wow and Neo and Chris Brown, um, um, Anthony Hamilton. And then I did, um, I did some stuff with Josh Groban, um, Disturbed, Don Henley, Tears for Fears, stuff in that vein. Oh, wow. How was the Tears for Fears gig? It was amazing. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> I was doing monitors for them for a couple of tours. Um, and uh, all the years, uh, the guys are um, big uh, audiophiles and, and they want, you know, they want things, you know, pan and spread and EQ'd and mixed like an album and stuff. And it was it was such a joy and pleasure to work with such great music and great musicians. It was uh, it was incredible. That was that was going to be my question from the get go before, because it appears to me that that would be a band that wants to sound extremely well um and they'll probably achieve it so. yeah i mean like they were specific they would be they'd be like like roland he'd be like hey can i get a little less 500 in my guitar uh can you you know pan that a little more to the left and stuff i mean very specific um and the beauty about that is i mean you couldn't ask for anything more as a monitor engineer you know the you know instead of like ah it doesn't doesn't feel right it's like no no, no. they would tell you what is wrong that's great I'll do that. Is that good? Cool. So yeah, it was it was great working with them. The big question is, were they right? You know, you get those guys that are like, oh yeah, can you take one uh, k down in my in, in my ears, and you take it down? They're like, no, no, not that one. <laughs> no, <laughs> they, they were. <laughs> yeah, no, they they were. Um, you know, they were they were kind of studio musicians before their first album. So like their first album, the hurting when it came out, like they had. Um, no one really knew who they were when that first album came out. They decided they were going to go in the studio, and make the best album possible with some of the best musicians at the time and put, as opposed to like kind of break and kind of work your way up. So um, musically, sonically, they were like, that was their goal. And then touring and things like that were secondary. Hmm. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, and even like songs from the big chair, that's what Wes and I were talking about yesterday. You 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 put it against any new synth pop album and it's just it, it just punches just like it. Yeah, so there um if you if you're big in the Tears of Fears, um so Roland had a side project called um the uh the Screaming Tomcats Outside. Oh shoot, is that, is that the name of the album? I'll have to I'll have to double check on this. Right. Anyway, he had a solo project he had a he, um, he had a misfortunate uh, timing of when the album came out. The album came out on nine eleven, <laughs> um, and uh, so it didn't go very far. But um, he was the one that kind of drove the more synth um, electronic side of Tears for Fears, whereas uh, Kurt was more of the pop um, side. Anyway, so that that album's got more of like a drum and bass electronic feel to it, but with like Roland style. So, this, I mean, th those guys really complemented each other with uh, with their two vocal styles. I mean, you have two completely different people, and 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 ones you know everybody wants to rule the world versus um, uh, you know shout and stuff were completely different style songs, but from the same band. Yeah, it's, it's a lot right. of fun. There is there is this band out of New York. Um, and they do like they're not around anymore. They, they went on to other projects. They call Crema Paraíso, and they do like Venezuelan folk, but they do it all psychedelic. And they have a cover of "Everybody Wants to Rule the World." Um, it, and and it per, it's perfect as a twelve-eight time signature is very mm. common in certain Venezuelan folklore. So they do it that way, but with guitar and drums, with so they folklorize it. It's it's really really cool, and it, it just. 
that song every time I hear it, I'm like, yeah, it's a pop song in 12 8. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's dope. <laughs> well, the cool thing about so everyone wants to roll, I have a weird trifecta thing with the artists that I've toured with. So, um, so obviously I toured with Tears for Fears. Then I toured with Don Henley, which Don Henley covered Everybody Wants to Rule the World. So it was kind of like surreal being out with Don Henley. He's covering another artist that I had toured with, you know, uh, Tears for Fears. And then I had toured previously with Disturbed, who had covered Shout. So I've toured with like the middle band Tears for Fears, and then two other tour, two other artists that I've worked with had also covered Tears for Fears. It was kind of a fun full circle thing there. I, I I'm trying to envision Disturbed covering Shout. You know, like I'm not. A- oh, it's easy. I mean, that's. I mean, that's. <laughs> hey, you kidding me? Like, yeah. yeah, but like that just seems I don't know when you said that because I'm not a huge disturbed fan, but I'm familiar with their music and I'm just like, okay, that seems interesting. They do really good covers, so they almost always put out an 80s cover on every album. So they did like Land of Confusion, they did Shout, um, and I don't remember some of the other 80s covers, but almost every album Disturbed put out, they put out an 80s cover and they do really good with it. Yeah, I, I think I've heard Land of Confusion. I think I have heard that one, but shout. Oh, obviously, uh, right. S- Sound of Silence, right? Yeah, that would, you know, so, yeah, I mean, which I've also worked with. Um, um, yeah, not um, Bridge Over Trouble Water, um, Paul Simon. Paul Simon. Which you- tour was that? Was that? Uh, sorry, I didn't do a tour with him. So I got to do a cool gig actually with Josh Groban and Paul Simon. So Paul Simon did a residency at the Brooklyn Academy of Music in, in Brooklyn, where he spent like four weeks there, and each week he did like a decade of his of his albums or like or of his career. Um, and Josh had always covered um, "Bridge Over Troubled Water" uh, or "America" when we were on tour, and he and. Our bass player from Josh Groban was Bikiti, which was Paul Simon's or Simon and Garfunkel's bass player from the whole Graceland thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which you're a bass player, right, Felix? Right. I I, I actually it's pretty funny because at the Nam show I've always seen Bikiti one way or another, and the last Nam show before COVID, I actually walking out of one booth, I think Fender, we're shoulder to shoulder. And it was really funny because for the first time I talked to somebody at Nam and I'm like, Hi. <laughs> and he's a short little guy. He's he a is, short little dude. And I was looking up to him at that point. It was just really funny. He's uh, awesome. He's a monster. He's a beast. So yeah. we had we had Bikiti out with us on Groban. But anyway, um, so Josh had always idolized Paul Simon. So what what Paul Simon did is he would do like he'd have his band like Steve Gadd, Bikiti, like all these people, all these, you know, killer musicians. He would do a couple of his songs that he'd bring a couple of other artists to come and play with his band or do their own band and do renditions of his songs like with him. So like, you know, it's like Josh and Paul Simon doing Bridge Over Trouble Water together. You know, it's phenomenal. So I get to basically be there for a week, walk up to the console when Josh was there for like three songs and I sit back and just enjoy the experience. Awesome. It was awesome. I got to see Paul Simon on the last tour. And it was really funny because every time they brought a, every time they played anything from Graceland and the fretless mm. came out, the bass went up a few dB. Um, it was like it, it, to the point that I, I kept telling my wife she didn't care, <laughs> but I was like, "Watch it, the bass is gonna go louder." And she started noticing it at some point. I'm like, "Yeah, you're right." I'm like, "Yeah, it has to be. <laughs> it has to cut through." It's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's 
That's uh, that Graceland album. You know, I would have in retrospect, you know, that was not something that I, I grew up as a like a metal kid in the 80s. And, you know, and into the 90s, I kind of went in a different direction. But that was Graceland was not something that was it was on my radar, obviously, because it was on everybody's radar. But I didn't get what it really was until much later in life. And I was like, man, I should have gone and seen that tour. That would have been amazing. You know. So here, Len, I'm going to help segue this for you. This is perfect, right? So, you know, part of obviously what I do is how we got loud, which we'll get there in a second to explain that. But um, one of the guys that I've interviewed twice already, David Morgan, was Paul was um, um, Paul Simon and uh, Simon and Garfunkel's front front house engineer. His first tour was Graceland. And he was with he was with Simon and Garfunkel or Paul Simon for like twenty some years, um, and so it, it, and like we both know Bikini. It's it just I I love how small this industry is. That like mm-hmm. is if you've been in this industry for um, at least the touring side, if you've been on the touring side for I don't know five years, you know half the industry. Yeah. Like it's it's a pretty small mm-hmm. fun industry. So. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's absolutely true. You know, uh, when I was doing that side of it, you know, now granted it was nine years ago, uh, when I got eight years ago, when I got out of the business full time, but, uh, even at that time, it was the same deal, you know, like I was doing the last three years of me doing this was at the house of blues here in Dallas. I was the Mm. monitor engineer in the main hall. So I actually ran across all kinds of people that, you know, I, now I run into on this side of the business, like Michael Bangs is a prime example. Mm -hmm. I worked with him when he was out with neon trees. So, you know, it's you, you, it's the same people like every time it's the Mm -hmm. same people. And you would see, even at the house of blues on that level, that 15, 1800 seat cap thing, you know, you would see, an engineer probably four times a year with three different bands, you know, right. and you're yep. just like, Oh, Hey man, you're with these guys now, you know? So yeah, you definitely run into the same people. So the, I like to segue into the, how we got loud thing, because <laughs> we talked about that a little bit before we got started here, but uh, it's one of my favorite podcasts. Cause I'm a giant nerd when it comes to, to audio gear and like the history of it is super fascinating to me. I remember when I first started coming up, seeing the pictures of the, the wall of sound and be like, I have no idea how that works. That's insane. Like they did that back in the, you know, way back in the day and it looks crazy. And how does that even function as a thing with people in front of speakers? And then you read about it and you're like, it doesn't make any more sense. You know, uh, even when you know what's going on there, it makes even less sense kind of, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, you, you talk about a little bit about how you kind of started that and, and what you're doing with that. Sure. So yeah, how we got loud. It's my, it's my project that I started the concept of it came up actually about a year ago. So like January of last year. So we haven't talked about this yet, but so I, I do another podcast or I'm co-host on a podcast, Sickle to Noise podcast, which is mm-hmm. kind of my, my weekly regular podcast that I work on. And, you know, we talk everything from front of house engineers, monitor engineers, broadcast engineers, just, you know, if you're in the audio industry in some fashion, we're talking to you, right? And, and every now and then you're talking to like legends who are in the industry and, uh, and just got to thinking, I'm like, hey, what's maybe we should dig into the kind of the history of live sound a little bit. Um, and I was like, well, maybe we can make a seg, you know, we can make like a whole like series on it. It just, it didn't necessarily fit with what we were doing with Singleton Noise. Um, and so I started with process a little bit more. I was like, well, maybe just try, you know, I'll, I'll maybe just do some interviews on my own, see where this goes. Um, I started coming up with a concept. We came up with a name and logo, or I came, you know, I came up with a name and logo with uh, Michael, actually my co-host uh, from Singleton Noise, the How We Got Loud, and then I sat on it. Um, and it wasn't just because of COVID. I mean, just last year in general, which is a busy year, and I didn't really get my thoughts together. And then towards the end of the year, I started just, again, processing it. Um, I was like, hey, what... 
what do, what do I want to do? What do I want to sink my teeth into? And it's like this, and you start thinking about like the history of live sound. Like I started searching things about it and I'm like, man, there's like, there's not one good collective place for like all of the history of live sound. You know, there's not a Wikipedia that lists all of it. There's not, you know, yes, Persound Web has a lot of good articles on it, or there's a book here and there. So it's all, you know, I want to find a way to unify all that. So, and there's a lot of these living legends that are still around. Our industry is still relatively young um, in that, you know, pioneers are still around, you know. So our industry really only got started in the 60s. You know, that's not that long ago in, in perspective. So I was like, well, let me, I, I, I've set a very lofty goal and I, and, and I kind of use the language of this is like, I've made it now a lifetime goal to make the ultimate history of live sound. And I say lifetime because I know it's going to take literally a lifetime to curate and get all this together. Um, and so what I kind of packages together by saying how we got a lot of stories about the people, technology, and passion that built the history of live sound, right? Those are the three key things, uh, um, people, story, and passion. Um, if you're in this business, it's because of passion. And to me, I want to kind of emphasize the people. Um, we'll talk about companies, you know, like Taika Bray and, and Shoko and Claire and MSI, but it's the people that made those companies. And so I want to hear from their perspective and their lens of view of, of, of how things come together together and I want to hear from them like I want to hear from 10 different people uh about Jim Gamble and then I want to talk to Jim Gamble you know uh it's you know it's not just a one a one-sided thing and um you know and I think that you know in exploring how to do it it's like I didn't want to just sit there and narrate the story you know I'd much rather just feed some nuggets of questions and let somebody run with that I I feel I know I learn better in story form and like you gather this information by just have someone tell a story and then, you know, you gather from that. It's not going to be like, well, in 1962, this happened. And in 1963, this happened. And then, you know what I mean? So that's that's kind of my approach and, and what I'm going at it. And uh, I think about, I'm about 10 episodes deep so far. And it's, uh, it's a ton of fun and a lot of work. <laughs> Yeah, I, I bet. I bet the research alone is, is you know, there's there's quite a bit going into that and talking to one guy and then him saying, oh, this is who you should talk to. And then you talk to him and he's like, no, 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 no. this other guy is who, you know, there's that whole chain of people because this business was kind of started in, a, in an incredibly DIY kind of way. You couldn't buy stuff off the shelf. You had to mm -hmm. basically be an EE to be able to own a console because you had to build it yourself, yep. you know? And I, I think... You know, even coming up in my age, there was a lot more of the maintenance side of it. You had to know how to fix things, you know, and how to pull apart a channel strip and, you know, see what's fried on it and pull out, you know, I mean, you had to be able to do that stuff. Even as, you know, as young in this business, comparatively speaking, as I am, that was still something that had to be done. And yep. I don't see very much of that anymore. And those guys were really doing it. Yeah. It's, is that a happy accident after happy accident, right? It's, it's what we talked about uh, when we talked to Peterson, uh, yeah, about SM58. That it, it 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 was a flop, and it took years for it to catch on. Um, and it's it's, it's interesting because you still see that happening. You still see products being used for a different purpose than what they were 
initially designed. It's, it's beautiful what happens when you put it in hands of, of, of people out in the field. Yeah, especially if you, um, and I'm, I'm working on talking to Bob Heil soon, um, soon in air quotes here, because I have access to, I just have to have the time. But anyway, um, he actually, when, when Heil Sound had their 50th anniversary, which I think is about six years ago now, uh, he did a whole podcast series where someone interviewed him. And so I've been kind of listening to them in preparation for me talking to him. Um, and same thing, like the talk box, you know, the stomp box, like that was happy accident to create, you know, and Peter Frampton just happened to like, you know, latch onto it. Um, you know, so yeah, things like that for sure are happy accident in terms of like the research side. So the podcast is, is only a portion of it. That's just, a, that's just a means by which people get to sit behind my shoulder and listen to the conversations that I have with people. In the meantime, I also have a whole database that I'm building. So I have a, I have a whole um, uh, like Excel spreadsheet with multiple tabs. And so like the first tab is, is sound companies. And so I list like every sound company, the year they were started, you know, the year they founded, who their founders were, who their key bands were, who they were sold to when. Uh, and the next tab be like consoles, like all the manufacturers, Allen and Heath, you know, you know, um, Yamaha, you name it, all of their, all of their consoles, what year they were uh, made, speakers, you know, consoles, uh, I said, microphones. Anyway, again, the idea, when I say ultimate, I mean it. Like I'm trying to document every possible piece of gear, speaker, person, you name it. I'm databasing that and finding a way at some point to show that information live. So the, really the, the podcast is just a means by which to kind of get to that next point and capture these stories while also fact finding. Um, and yes, you're right. As soon as I talk to one person, they've given me 20 more names of, Oh, I got to talk to this person. I got to talk to this person. So yeah, yeah it's a snowball effect. Yeah. We should totally, we did a, one of the, uh, earlier podcast that we did was with Michael Pedersen. He's the shore historian. Mm. He's literally, he's had, literally like five careers at shore different completely different careers and now he's the guy that has to keep the entire history of shore and mm. it's it his stories are fantastic you know he's got a great story about uh uh about sinatra throwing a microphone at him you know like it's i mean he's got that kind of stuff because he's been around mm -hmm. for that long you know he'll tell you about when he went to to uh where did where was he with the stones somewhere in latin america he just was you know doing rf for the stones on this giant thing you know like those kind of stories where you're yep. like when did that happen oh yeah in the eight, early 80s you know like, okay wireless <laughs> microphones really do you <laughs> as, as you see the history because i i can only think about about it chronologically and has sound evolved and changed especially live sound do you see a relationship between live music the progress of technology in live music informing the type of music that's being created and vice or vice versa, or which one is informing the other or is, yeah. it, or is it both ways? So that's something I actually asked some of the guests about. Um, that was something that I hadn't really processed. I mean, again, the podcast you'll, if you listen to it, you'll hear is you hear my journey too, of like thinking about these things and processing mm -hmm. these things. And yeah, for sure. Like, um, I mean, the, the whole Beatles effect, right? Like um, the Beatles had their sound before they were amplified live. Um, and the, the, the craze that that stirred, you know, and the mass gatherings that came before you know, pre Beatles, you know, you didn't have crowds of thousands and thousands of people. Right. So that necessitated the need for more amplification, bigger speakers, all those things. Um, and then, you know, uh, Bob Dylan got, you know, at, uh, oh, I'm going to forget it now. The festival um, Jazz Fest. 
Yeah, Jazz Fest, like the, the the famous, like he got electric. He went electric, right? Distortion came in. It's like, okay, well, how do we handle this? You know, um, and and so yes, I, but I don't think that was. I don't think what he was doing was fueled by you know the sound industry. The sound industry had to keep up, you know. And then to me, you know, and just rock and roll got grittier and louder and more people. And so yeah, for sure, I think I think the I think music has pulled live sound along. Um, and then the same thing too, like, you know, another example would be like EDM, right? So what perpetuated that, right? I'm pretty sure that the art of what they were trying to accomplish was done on a small scale first and has to be now, you know, I need a thousand more subs than I ever had before to create this happen. So yeah, it's definitely like this cart horse, chicken egg, what came first, you know, I've always, uh, I've always heard the story of hip hop, how a lot of when, when the first recordings of hip hop, but you had, um, Sugar Hill Gang and stuff like that. And it was like, they were, tr- it didn't sound like a real hip hop party and, and producer. I think it was like Rick Rubin at some point realizing this is not what I hear. What I hear on the record is not what I hear in the parties outside in the club. Mm-hmm. It's like, how do you make that? How do you get that sound in people's houses? And, mm-hmm. um, and I think it goes to, at some point, I think I was reading recently, um, Tribe Called Quest, uh, Low End Theory, how it was responsible for people needing to put subwoofers in their cars and things like that because it was nice. just impossible to yeah. recreate. Uh, my sound system at home is from the 70s and I don't hear a lot of anything below certain things of that album. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, yeah. it's really interesting uh, how that, that back and forth. Well, and, and there's the whole... <sighs> that whole conversation you can have about the the energy and the moment of live sound versus a recording. You know, mm-hmm. I've, I started off on the recording side of things and then, you know, fell into live sound and actually enjoyed that more, but still do the recording thing, still did the recording thing. So, but that was my whole take is the immediacy of what's going on in live sound and the, the way that you can drive a crowd and they all work off of each other. And there's this whole, like it's it's really hard to pull off on a record. It takes you know you don't have that. There's the moment it's gone. You know mm-hmm. like that that kind of thing that you do in live sound, and that's that's why it's really difficult to to really translate some of that stuff. You know you have to do a whole lot more tricks in the studio to get that kind of a feeling of energy. You know and live yeah, sound absolutely. really does that. Yeah, the that's I mean that's that's what connects most live sound engineers to the art of why we do what we do. I mean it's that um uh being being the delivery service the medium to invoke an experience i mean you know some of people's most memorable times in life are at concerts you know they're they are music is intrinsically part of who most people are um and and so to be able to be a part of delivering that experience and not hind- like that's the thing too like you know, more like the art of mixing. It's like not hindering that experience, right? Like we can't get in the way, you know, we're not the, we're not the art makers. Yes. We can, we can kind of, you know, do add our flavor and our sauce and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, that art originated up on stage. And so it's your job to translate that faithfully uh, to, to the desire of how that artist wanted to, you know, connect with the audience. And so to not get in that way, but the sweet spot of where you are marrying, that absolutely it's a hundred percent why we do what we do yeah we're the i always say we're the window that the audience is is viewing that art through and we can be you know a little on the fringes add some extra little you know flourishes around there but ultimately 
You know, we are the window that allows them to see that art. And there is a, there's a certain thing of being there where, you know, you're, you're doing that thing and you can look out and you see that audience is just, ah, you know, mm. they, as, there's that as a sound guy, how important was it for you when touring, when, when you're touring with a band in particular to know their material, uh, their, their recorder, how, how tears for fears or whoever, how is, how important is it for you to know the album sound when you go on the road? Um, yeah, it's it's very important. Um, you know, maybe maybe not so much on a festival and stuff like that, right? Throw and go stuff. But I mean, from a tour perspective, yeah, it's very important. I mean, like when I found out that I was going to get to tour with Tears or Fears, again, I'm a somewhat younger guy, and so I mean, let's face it, their first album came out the year I was born. You know, um, and so I kind of knew of them, but I didn't necessarily know their catalog. Um, and I definitely went through, I had them send me, you know, Hey, give me a rough idea what your set list is going to be. So I can at least study those ones. And I kind of listened to other albums uh, around it. But I mean, yeah, for hours upon hours before going to rehearsals, I was listening to it. Um, and it's, it's very important because again, you know, if, you know, they've designed a piece of art that they're trying to translate. And so if you don't know what that they're trying to translate, you know, you know, it'd be like, um, you know, a valuable lesson I learned early on was, you know, I, I didn't listen to a lot of R&B and stuff growing up. I listened to a lot of more metal and rock. And yet a lot of the artists that I was working with early on were R&B. And so, like, I'm tuning the kick drum, you know, and I'm like, yes, oh, yeah, this, this is hitting us good. And they're like, what is that? And I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, what is it like clicking? And I'm like, uh, you know, like, no, they're like, lop that off. Like, we don't want to hear any click. It's all, you know, it's all this like bottom end, you know, boxy sound. I'm like, yeah, but that's what the art was. That's what the sound was. And so I wasn't faithfully representing it and I had to kind of change it. And so uh, you can't, you know, you can't take the same kick drum sound across every mix you do because that's just not how it's supposed to sound. That's yeah. funny you say that. My first audio engineering class we were working was recording and, and we're doing like uh, group work. So I'm teamed with another guy and we're mixing a, a, a drums, a drum sound and the kick. He's all about that click. And I'm, I'm all 808. Like, no, what's happening? <laughs> it's just like we realized at that point. Oh yeah, that's what's happening. So we find a happy medium. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna yeah. say you could actually just marry the two together and have a really good kick drum sound. Yeah. Got all that bottom end and that attack on there. Yeah. So that's what yeah. I've been doing lately, actually, on studio mixes. I'm like, yeah, I like both, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's different as a monitor guy, too. You know, like sure. that's that's a very mm -hmm. different world that you're living in. You know, I made I did most of my time, you know, on over there on stage left. So, yeah, same here. you know, that that to me was the the sweet spot too. I mean, that's mm -hmm. when you're, when you're not touring, you know, uh, when you're doing, you know, the bigger house gigs too, that's, that's the only play, only person that gets to interact with the artist. You know, you're the mm -hmm. only one that, that front of house guy that's sitting out there, that's watching the console for their front of house guy to come out. He's not talking to anybody, but that front of house guy, you know, which can be cool, obviously, mm -hmm. but you know, I got to work with everybody from train to BB King to, you know, I mean, all these guys that I got to do monitors for and Snoop Dogg and all this stuff. I would have never interacted with those dudes if, if I was at front of house, you know? Right. And, mm -hmm. and I always feel like we're kind of the, the most important I'm gonna, dudes. I want to have a collection of West <laughs> dissing front of house guys. <laughs> Little I'm clip. not dissing front of house guys. I'm just saying we're more important. I 100% agree with you. I mean, I make way more mixes than any front of house engineer mm -hmm. ever will. Faster. Um, yeah, faster. Um, and I, I, I impact the show way more than any front of house engineer ever mm -hmm. will. 
<laughs> yeah. If I'm having a bad day, so is the front of house guy. You know, or, or the artist. I mean, yeah yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. So yeah, I'm. All right, hold on, hold on. Guys. So I'm I'm done that first beer. So are we going Colt 45 or am I sticking the Voodoo Ranger? Where, where am I going? I, I'll vote for Colt 45, man. I think it has. <laughs> we got to do it, right? We got to do it, right? You kind of have to, man. You, you know, that's uh. Oh. In the paperback, please. We, we oh. want to hear that. Oh, yeah, it's got paper paperback. Hold on, hold on. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's that's so brutal. You are are you releasing this in video form so people can uh, get oh, this we are all now. the glory? Yes, yes. yes. Absolutely. All right. Cheers. Absolutely. You're gonna get the and we'll get the crinkle of the bag in there, you know, for the audio guys. <laughs> so that people listen to the podcast. It's fantastic. Paper bag ASMR. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so uh you, you talked about the the how we got loud thing. So you uh you kind of went from Maryland Sound to a corporate thing, is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So what was that transition like? I mean, I've done some corporate work, but like you know. a record screech. Uh, no, um, no, I'm just, <laughs> no, it was so, uh, you know, it was, it was the, the big, the easiest way to say it was, it was a, it was a life move, not a career move. Mm. Right. Um, you know, I had been touring. Um, I found my wife while I was on the road. Uh, you know, baby comes along, and at first, that all looks good, and and yeah, this is what I'm doing. Cool, I'm about. Yeah, and then it's like, nope. You know, this is uh, this this is tough to deal with, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so it was more of you know, I needed to be home more for my family, um, and my wife wanted to kind of re- relocate closer to where she was from, which is in a, the Philly area, which is where I'm at now, and uh, you know, and and I picked the worst time to be looking for a job. Uh, it was I was started looking in two thousand two thousand nine like end of 2009 which is kind of like right after the crash of 2008 so i'm calling companies i'm looking for like local you know regional sound companies that are in philly so i can still kind of do the rock and roll thing but not tour and like nobody's hiring uh and actually and this kind of goes back to you know some of the good reasons about being connected to a school is that one of my mentors was one of the guys who was at the school and he had found a listing for ims which is you know where i'm at now as a corporate av company he's like hey check these guys out he didn't know who they were he just saw a listing for it and i called him up and i'm like hey what do you what do you guys got going on I'm not really looking for an av company but you know um like what well, we're looking for you know a, a director of audio like someone to kind of like lead lead the department we're a growing company at the time they had just bought um, 16 boxes of Vertec 87, their first M7. Uh, other than that, we're talking like Mackie Gigrax, um, you know, you know, eons on sticks, um, you know, you know, basic bare bones AV. I was like, man, this is, you know, here I am coming from MSI working on Studer Vista 5 SRs. I'm doing Times Square New Year's Eve, the inauguration, these tours, teacher fears. And like, it was, it was a, um, very tough, humbling step back, um, both financially uh, and in in quote air quote success in terms of you know I was starting to make a name for myself as a touring monitor engineer um, you know I got you know Don Henley disturbed um, tears of fears you know like I I would have had that tears of fears gig for the rest of my life if I if I wanted it to you know um, and uh, so so I made the transition and it's definitely. I've learned now retrospectively, right? I've been here uh, 11 years. I was the director of audio for 10 years. I just recently became the director of technical operations. I need to update that bio, by the way, I guess. Um, That just happened. But anyway, um, 
And uh, it's fun. I was part of a growing AV company doing from, you know, basic ballroom AV to doing, you know, now we'll do 10,000 person general sessions in a convention center, uh, still traveling a lot. Um, but, you know, maybe gone a week or two at a time max or like a week at a time, home for a couple of days, back out for another week, not three, four or five months on the road. Um, so still getting to do my passion, still getting to do audio, um, but just in a different way. So that was kind of that transition. That's long winded, but I'm a podcaster. So that happens. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. We do the same thing. So uh, you, you said something about the inauguration. Um, you did that with Maryland sound. Yeah. Four times. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool <laughs> so the last one you did was 08 or no last one i did was um no last no uh, that was that that would have been my second one i've done the last i didn't do the last one with trump uh mm-hmm. or sorry um with biden mm-hmm. um i did uh bush's first both of obama's and trump's so, yeah. um so the only one i haven't i was supposed to have done the last one but hashtag COVID, um, I was actually supposed to do it all the way up until right before Christmas. Um, I was signed on to do it. They actually start loading in January 2nd, uh, and they're there all the way through the 21st. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a three, um, like three week load in to set up mm-hmm. and tune that thing. Um, and because of COVID, they cut audience down and stuff. So they had to reduce the size of the crew. Um, and so I wasn't able to be there for this one, but yeah, I've done four of them, which is, um, it's a lot. It's cool. Yeah, I, I, I just had a question because I saw I think Garth Brooks came out and he sang with no monitor. I thought that was killer. I was like, wow. Well, there's there's, there's Dude has, oh, there were wedges. So. Okay, because I yeah. saw everybody else with ears, and I was like, there's no way this guy is just going at it without without yeah, wedges. There, there's 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 wedges. So yeah, Maryland Sound has done the inauguration for the last at least six inaugurations, oh. um, possibly seven, but at least six. Yeah, it's a fun contract. Yeah, I mean it's. I mean it's probably uh, two. It's the most one of the most historic gigs I've ever done would be Obama's first inauguration. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, how do you top? Yeah. You know, as one of the largest gatherings in U.S. history, uh, our first, you know, African American president, like all, you know, all the check boxes of like Beyonce. I mean, um, Beyonce. Yeah, I mean it was. <laughs> I mean it's like, you know, it does. The stage doesn't get bigger than yeah. like that. You know, like how do I top that? I mean, I, I had one other experience doing uh, the Philadelphia Eagles Super Bowl parade where I got to design and mix that system, and that was between eight hundred thousand and a million people. It was Philadelphia's largest outdoor gathering they've ever had. Um, uh, so they're special in different ways, right? I mean, the Eagles mm-hmm. thing I got to do. You know, that was I designed it, I mixed it. Um, but then, like the Obama thing, I was a system tech, but I was at least a part of it. So it's kind of mm-hmm. they're like they're kind of tied. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow! So how well, many people I was there. in jail? I at was that there. Philadelphia thing. <laughs> what is it about the? Oh, wait, how many? I was just making a joke about how many Phil, how many people went to jail at that Philadelphia thing. And I was as a football guy. I always make the joke about the Philly is the only. Oh, place you're that probably has a, a Dallas. You're probably a Dallas fan, right? Uh, unfortunately, yeah, I was born that way. Yeah, I I'm. I'm. It. I'm neither. I'm a Ravens fan. I'm from Baltimore, so it's all yeah. good. I was. I was an Eagles fan that year. I've never cared more <laughs> about a Super Bowl um, win in my life or, or a game. You know, because we we got the call like a week before the um, Super Bowl. We're the Eagles vendor. We do a lot of stuff in the stadium and their club levels for like all their corporate work, and uh, they're like, hey. Um, it costs like a week before they go to the Super Bowl. 
hey, if we if we win, we have to have a parade. Like, all right. So you have to plan as if it's happening the entire time because Monday morning after the Super Bowl, you're loading in if they win. So you have to so you know, you took what would normally have been months worth of planning for an event that size. I had speakers set up literally over a mile's span. I had over three seconds of delay by the time I got to my last line array wow. tower. Um, uh, and it, we, we designed that in like two days and then started prepping. Uh, we were meeting with like, you know, the city and ordinances and you know, LED walls and all this stuff. Um, and then sure enough, a Monday morning, you know, we're down there loading in and that yeah, was a crazy gig. Did you run copper to all of those speakers no. or was it, was it wireless? Um, so Philadelphia, there is, uh, people know it as like the Rocky steps. It's like the art mm -hmm. museum steps. That's yeah. where like the stage was. There's this area called the Eakins oval, which is like this area around it. We ran fiber between all of the MSI. So I brought an MSI. So this goes back to like, uh, I preach a lot about, um, having relationships. Um, so I, ha I haven't been with MSI for, you know, 10, 11 years now, but I have a very strong relationship and partner with them. And they have these cool poles that they use at the inauguration Times Square, New Year's Eve. I brought them. I had 14 of those poles and another four or six um like shooting boom arms like lols to hang the rest of the uh, arrays on um so in the oval we ran fiber to all those towers and then down um not broad street um the parkway down to mm -hmm. city hall if you're familiar with the area uh we were able to shoot rf both video and audio because we had led uh, mobile led trailers and mm -hmm. a tower like every 400 feet down the parkway down all the way down to city hall so that shot rf and that's how we we had to stack delay though um so we did the initial delay time for the, the oval uh, and my processor. And then I did the delay time for like the first RF transmission locally. And then I did each timing after that in the amplifiers because I had over three seconds of delay by the time I got to the last tower. And so you can't actually typically do that in a processor. So yeah. at least you had to do the reverse math of you started the initial delay from the first one, then add delay on top of that after each, wow. each tower. So And when did the parade happen again? Like what year? No, so so Monday game is on Sunday. You get the call Monday, ready to go. The parade happens. So it was supposed to happen Wednesday. Okay. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, it poured raining, so they postponed it to Thursday. So we it bought us a day to continue. So we had everything set up by Wednesday. Wednesday we spent um, tuning, time aligning. So I spent eight hours out there, a torrential downpour, just walking. So. Um, we did some rough math of like, we basically walked it with a measuring stick to do loose timing between the towers and they started to listen to it and kind of dial it in. So put the rough timing in, I put on music, we put on a uh, Daft Punk fragments in time. Um, and I literally just walked from tower to tower. We set the delay time, but you know, you're walking, you know, across the city and it's raining and you're still figuring things out. So it took a couple hours for us to kind of get all that in. So Thursday we had the, uh, had the parade. There was a year that everybody was, every sound guy I knew was using a song from that record, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that funk. It was like everywhere you, you, I remember I live in Austin and you, you could hear as you walk by venues, just playing a, a song from, uh, uh, from that Daft Punk album just coming out. I was like, yeah, that's, that's, that is Soundcheck album. What, Fragments of Time is awesome <laughs> is because excellent. Yeah. it's, it's for, sonically it's good, right? It's repetitive in a good mm -hmm. way. So for what we need is repetitive. Um, and it's just enough vocal 
that you can hear vocal, but you ha- it has that you know um, constant click of like yep. the, the the snare and stuff and the hi hat, so you, you can hear timing. You can hear that. Like some people were like, "Well, why didn't you use the metronome?" Things like I'm like, "Hold on, I have to listen to this." You know, we're talking broad stroke. You know, you know, like oh. Uh, take off 20 milliseconds, uh, add 15. We're not, you know, we're we're talking wide ranges here. Right. And, um, I gotta make sure it blends and things like that. So if you can, if you can accomplish that with music by hearing something has timing in the music and it's well-rounded, you can cover, you know, you know, two birds and one stone. Right. And it's pretty nerdy because it's fragments of time and you work yeah. in the <laughs> your timing. Yeah. Damn it. You know what? All this, t- there's many times as I've talked about this, that is the first time it's been pointed out. I appreciate that. It's the that beer. Is- it's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's telling well, me. Well, hopefully this Colt 45 can help me. We'll see. So I, I did. The, so the other, re- the other reason I went Colt 45. So I'm like, I thought about this. I was going to come in with like um, Edward 40 hands. I was going to tape a 40 to my hand. I was going to maybe go do that. Like I, th- I thought about this, right? So I went to the store today and I was, you know, I was like steel reserve, you know, there's Colt 45. And so the Colt 45 is, so they were, they're from Baltimore um, and Colt 45 is because of the Baltimore Colts, which is I'm from Baltimore. I used to pass by where they built Brutus. So like, I was trying to tie a couple things together here with it. So nice. And the whole Billy D Williams side of it. You, you might not remember that. Uh, there was a commercial back in the day where he did Colt 45 commercials and he would hold up Colt 45 works every time. No, the <laughs> reference I get more is Afro man, you know, Colt 45 and two zigzags, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I love being the old guy on the podcast. I'm, I'm Kyle Turnside on this one. Nice. He did, nice. He, he did sound for the last supper. that was my first gig yeah so you did the uh you've done the inauguration you did the the whole thing so for the record just i didn't mix the inauguration i don't want to take any credit for that it's just a system tech on it um the last one i did it was doing a bunch of comms i was inside i got the mic up like chief justice john roberts and clarence thomas and run comms inside um but no i did not mix it i just want to make that clear yeah yeah you still, you worked on it <laughs> and yep. that's, you, you got to actually, uh, you got to interact with the talent again. It's the yep. monitor engineer guy, you know, the guy that, yep. get, that behind the scenes, it gets to actually do something. So very nice. Well, um, <clears throat> that's, uh, that's a lot of stuff you've had a very, <laughs> for, for, <laughs> for where you're at, that's a lot of things that, that you can, uh, click off on that, that very professional looking, uh, bio that you have. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. I mean, look, I I I love audio. I have a passion for audio, and it's one of the things we talk about on Singleton Noise podcast is that, and you guys know this very well. Um, the mu- the music industry or sound, sorry, sound industry is bigger than just being a front of house and monitor guy, right? Like, even though you guys, you know, you are working for um, reps, working for manufacturers, you're selling stuff like you're just as much part of this industry as someone who is mixing for Beyonce mm-hmm. or the president or whatever. There are many avenues to take within this industry, whether it's a PA fly tech, a monitor tech, front of house broadcast, like the audio world is very vast and and um, 
so as I've gotten older, I've look, been looking at things in stages, right? I had like the touring stage, I did the corporate thing. Obviously, I've been, you know, cooking away with some of the podcasting stuff. Like it's it, the podcasting is kind of fun to be able to kind of stay connected to the industry in a different way. Um, I mean, some of the people we get to now, I get to call in like my circle of people that on my daily basis, like Jamie Anderson from Smart and Chris Raybold and Pooch and uh, just the, you know, Jimmy Akabuski, all these people that's like, you know they consider me friends and stuff now, and 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 we rub shoulders. I mean, the networking side of it is it's I love it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I this COVID thing has made me think that because uh, uh, I'm a giant nerd that maybe my next my second life in this industry maybe I should do a system tech thing and and get into that side of it, which is something coming up never occurred to me as a job. You know, yeah. and now you know I'm watching smart. I've taken a couple of smart classes. I love that side of it, that super nerdy number crunching side of it. That's also kind of this black art that other people don't really understand, and I love that kind of thing. So. You know, there are so many different facets of, of this that, you know, somebody coming up and you guys doing that, that mentorship program is amazing because you can actually bring people in and maybe that kid that's like, well, the only thing I want to do is it's front of house, you know, because that's the that's the the big job, the big chair that you're mm-hmm. sitting in on that side of the snake. And then they might go through some things and be like, oh, yeah, well, I really like tuning this PA and getting it sounding like, you know perfect exactly the way it needs to sound and they might not have ever known that before so how did that mentorship uh program start by the way like what was that yeah it's so it started so we have a facebook group uh please feel free to join signal noise podcast you search it and you'll find a facebook group we have over two thousand people in there many of which are our guests and then obviously listeners and ourselves and um there's just a feature like on facebook to like you know start a mentorship program within your um within your group and so kyle was like oh i'm gonna start this and we started kind of pairing people up and it was kind of loose and fun and then you know we've branched out outside of Facebook and like in the discord and some other places, people who aren't on Facebook. And it's like, Hey, we, we, we should probably take this mentorship program thing a little bit more seriously. Um, and so we put the cart before the horse a little bit. We're like, Oh, well, let's, let's create a Google form where people sign up and we'll create a spreadsheet. And we can uh, match people together. And we have a hundred and as of recording, uh, we have 130, some people signed up already. Um, Mind you, we have to actually go through and man, you know, manually pair people up with each other and put emails together and stuff. So it takes some time to kind of sort through it. And, you know, by program, really it is, is we have a catalyst by which to sign up um, and we're making the matches. After that, it's kind of your responsibility to, to hold up your end of the deal in terms of either mentor or mentee. Um, a lot of our mentors are people who, you, so when you sign up, you can choose to be a mentor or mentee or both. Um, and and you pick how many mentees you want as a mentor. So like Jimmy Akabuski has picked like, you know, he could up to up to like five people or, you know, I'm willing to do like two people. Um, and, uh, and we pair people up and it's, you know, we, we encourage people to kind of talk once a week, you know, and it could be just about a little nugget of like, hey, I'm working on this. What do you think about this? Or here's the career. Like, it doesn't have to be just about career path. You know, it can be once you develop a relationship with somebody um, like, hey, I have this problem. So I'm trying to solve, you know, how would you approach this, you know? Um, and to the, the depth and degree you go is kind of up to that relationship. Uh, but we're just tr- 
trying to help bring the industry together. Um, we're pretty proud of our Facebook group and our community of people. Um, it's a very non-negative space. Uh, there's a lot of talented, smart, caring um, people. I don't know if I can cuss, but we, we, we talk about giving giving a shit, right? The give a shit mentality, like we preach that. Um, and and that's what this our Facebook group does, our Discord group does, our, our mentorship program. It's just about bettering everybody within the industry. So yeah. Yeah. And you got some heavy hitters on that thing too. I mean, you know, you mentioned Jim Yakabushi and, you know, um, all those, that, that level of guy, you know, it's again, coming up, I would have never thought that there was a world in which somebody who is just starting off in this industry and has zero idea, uh, could reach out and actually talk to, uh, the guy that makes Van Halen, you know, like that's, that's crazy. Right. (laughs) Yeah, so that's that's a big thing. That's super cool that you guys are doing that. Yeah, and it's it's funny. Like we're all people, right? Like I've had some, some guys who got introduced and got my information. Like, oh, you know, you know, I can't believe you're willing to talk to me. Like, I'm just some dude who wants to talk audio. Like, I'm not special. You know what I mean? Like, and you know, just because I've gotten to do like air quotes here, like big gigs, you know, like you know, presidential stuff or touring stuff, like that doesn't equal pinnacle, right? Like, you know, you mentioned being at the house of blues, like there's nothing wrong with being the house guy at the house, at your local house of blue blues that is had delivers a consistent system. Your gear always works. You're, you're not an asshole, you know, and like people look forward to coming to your venue every day. That is 100% okay to do for a very long time, mm-hmm. right? People have this idea that like, hey, I got a mix for Beyonce or Bruno Mars or whatever. Like that's not necessarily the pinnacle. Now, if that is where you want to go, well, sure, find that avenue. But there are many other avenues to go and, you know, find at, at the core of it, find what drives you and pursue that. You know, uh, it's and I think the common thing between that guy going for the big start to the front of house guy from House of Blues, the lifers, I think the common denominator is loving what they do. Yeah, um, I equate it to to the craftsmanship. You know, um, like I have a big like I love hearing stories about the one guy that's building chairs, the one chair the same way, and he does one chair that looks the same all the time, and he's selling them for sixty years. Uh, it, it, it's really really cool, um, and I love that that you're you're making those connections with people that are truly it, it, it's a craft. You know, um, it's it's really cool to see. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that are, that are totally willing to do that, you know? Uh, and I, I know Chris, you've talked about this with some of these guys, but coming up, there was a, in my time period, there was this big, you don't, you, you teach guys, but you don't teach them everything, right? Because you had to keep your, your secret sauce there, which is what made mm-hmm. you more hireable than that dude that you're teaching. Right. And, you know, it feels like one of the, I don't know, quote unquote, silver linings of this whole COVID thing, if there is anything, uh, is the fact that I watched our entire industry come together and say, okay, we're not working. Let's teach each other. Let's, let's hold each other up and let's, by the time this is done, let's all be better, you know? And that's, you guys have really, you know, done that, that thing you that's, you guys stepped up just like everybody, you know, that came out with their own YouTube channel all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Drew Thornton's a prime example. His, you know, his, uh, Taylor two buses, uh, thing is, is fantastic, you know? And, but before this, 
he wouldn't have had time to do something like that. And somebody just coming up is like, holy crap, there's, you know, Billy Eilish's front of house guy is showing me how to, you know, how he uses groups, <laughs> you know, that's amazing. And that's yeah, not for sure. There was nothing like that when I was coming up. So I'm, I'm really hopeful that the next generation is going to maybe take that and it won't go back to the, well, here's 75% of this 25% is mine, you know, and yeah. I'm not going to tell anybody that. So Yeah. And I think that's attested to a generation of people like myself or others who took it upon themselves to just dig into everything possible and make it happen. Like ask the questions, pursue. Um, and yeah, I think, I think there was a big shift pre COVID of people willing to kind of share and, and express their knowledge. And I don't really know where that pinnacle change was. And that maybe that's something I can dig into with how we got loud in terms of, you know, the difference of keeping trade secrets versus, you know, just, Hey, we, we all want to propel this industry in general. And actually it's, it's something, something I actually ask some of these people sometimes of like, Hey, so, um, and I'm actually finding a, a surprising amount of people, and maybe this kind of shows where success is of some of the successful people who were willing to share that some some of that stuff, and they're still around. And maybe those who weren't, were, you know, who are trying to hold the cards close to their chest, maybe they didn't last as long, or they were actually more of the asshole, and they got kind of weeded out or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, there's definitely in general the the industry I think is by and large at this point of. The, um, they're not the fact that Pooch and Raybould have sat down for freaking who knows how many episodes at this point and basically mm-hmm. said every secret is in their book. Pooch is they always know, been that guy though, you know, right, like they, he's always been that dude, right? But they but they know that like you know some of the secret sauce isn't just because I can tell you how I do parallel compression and in, in sidechain this and that doesn't mean you're gonna be able to walk into Beyonce tomorrow and and mix a killer show right these are like the little things there's there's more of a package to it than that but uh yeah I'm all about making the next generation as possible I give back as much pos- as, as I can to like the recording school that I came from um, or we did some stuff for Webster University's AES. We did, you know, spoke at their conference and and yeah, anything we can do to give back. I mean, that's that's half of why we Sickles Noise podcast. Like, we just want to talk to these people, right? Um, and the fact that we can learn a little bit along the way, you know, bullshit about some food and and and, and whatever, you know, tacos. is all bonus. And the f- tacos and and if people want to listen, great, that's awesome. And people have chosen to listen, that's cool. But like, it's not why we do what we do. Like, we would be having like you and I, you and all three of us having this conversation. Like, if I came to Dallas or wherever you guys are in Texas, like. This is the same conversation we'd be having at the bar or at the back of the bus after the gig. Like that's that's what we do. Yeah, that was kind of the point of this this whole thing. Is when I was talking to Bangs about it, uh, Michael Bangs, when we did his, we interviewed him. It's like you know that same conversation we have every time when we're sitting at the bar drinking beer. We're just going to do it on a podcast. <laughs> you know? okay, if people want to listen, great. Yeah, if not, exactly, that's fine yeah. too. There's other stuff like whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I did a I did a test today at a theater, um, for for some technology for um, hearing assistance, and they were renewing some stuff, and they didn't have a source. So I brought the source. I got my phone, and somebody jokingly said, "Like, yeah, just play a podcast so you we can hear talking, nothing political, something like beekeeping." And I looked up beekeeping podcast. There's actually <laughs> a few beekeeping oh, yeah. podcasts, and I, I know a lot about people trapping um, uh, hornets. Um, 
for preserving the life of Beast uh, as of today because it was 45 minutes that we played twice. <laughs> All right. Well, next time, look up how we got loud or look up signals to noise. There's plenty of us talking. <laughs> but, Although but, but my, my point is, there's always somebody that wants to talk about something, and somebody's gonna. <laughs> um, it was very because they're reading letters from people. I'm like, wow, it's a big beekeeping community that listens to a podcast right now. Um, so, um, yeah, it's it's really cool. I think I think technology is probably driving a lot of that. I I I have a feeling that the whole keeping 25 percent secret of something. I I I think that was kind of a a, a thing people thought they had to do. Yeah. Um, and as we share more information, you see it with celebrities. Celebrities are not no longer the the. There's no mystique to a celebrity. There's no secrecy. Well, yeah, and everything. you have the whole like you know the TikTok and YouTubers and this set and the other like the the fact <clears> that they can break through. Like I don't know, some people, an older generation might shun on the TikTokers and YouTubers coming up and breaking through. But it's like, please, that 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 changes the barrier to entry. Like is no longer a monetary thing. You know what I mean? Like just look at. I mean, you know, like it or not, Bieber, he he came from YouTube. Right, like he was discovered because of YouTube, um, and whether you like his early music or not, I, I so Kyle and I, if you listened to the podcast recently, Kyle and I are big into Bieber's recent stuff, um, and don't judge me. Uh, no, 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 he, I'm there, I'm there. I just watch his tiny desk, and I'm like, oh man, I like it, dude. His <laughs> hit the 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 song "Lonely," yeah, the the, the level of, the <laughs> level of depth or like. I've sat there and tried to put myself in the mental headspace of him writing that song and the lyrics are in that song. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to Just Beer's Lonely yeah. and it'll wreck you if you try to put your head in what he's really trying to express. Like that's true art right there. Yeah, I saw him on SNL doing that and the performance. Yeah, it was cheesy for my taste, but the song connected and I remember being like, wow. He's been through a lot. I get it. I get him just listening. It was like, yeah, I mean, I cannot imagine being that famous, that young. I would have yeah. destroyed it. And that's what art's supposed to do. It puts yeah. you, you know, yep. that's that's why whenever there's some kind of regime or somebody takes over a country, one of the first things they do is outlaw local, you know, like the the indigenous music to that country. They, mm-hmm. they cut all that out because music is about the, is one of the only things that you can force somebody to feel or to, to, understand what you're doing on a very visceral level you know so they you know (laughs) when when you're taking over a country you don't want that kind of thing (laughs) you think bieber will be our salvation that's where you try yeah that's kind of where i'm going that's right right, 100 (laughs) percent well, he thought about starting a church. There is that. I mean, I do know his monitor engineer, and his monitor engineer told me, like, Bieber kept the one day, it's like, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to start a church. Can you, can, can you be my sound guy? Like, I, I I need a guy, man. And, hey, I'm there for you. I'm there for you. Anyway, so, yeah, there's, there's two I don't sides. Know if, I don't know if you know this guy. I, I keep in touch with him. Uh, uh, last year at the NAMM show, thankfully that happened before COVID, um, I take an Uber uh, after the show to go back to my hotel. And talking to the driver, he's like, oh, I'm trying to stay away from the convention center. Way too many people. Uh, my uncle is in there. He's, he's a bass player for so-and-so. He's doing demos or whatever. So I'm like, okay, he knows them. And then we keep talking. And he asked me, I tell him what I do. And he said that he just got some help from Sure doing um, wireless workbench. I'm like, 
I mean, my Uber driver knows wireless workbench. He's yeah, not BSing that's, me. That's, yeah. that's a left turn. Yeah, that's a left <laughs> yeah, yeah. turn. And then we keep talking and he goes like, yeah, the gig I'm doing right now, we just bought a D-Live. And I'm like, okay, what do you do? He was actually front of house engineer for, I might be making that up. I might be making front of house, either front of house or monitor engineer for Kanye's uh, church. Mm. And I was like, and why are you my Uber driver and not inside our name? I was like, I don't like the show. And, and I'm not on the road right now. So I just like making money and just, I'm not bored at home. Yeah. <laughs> and it was really cool. Anthony Branch is his name, I think, uh, out of California. Yeah, I don't know um, that name, but yeah. yeah. I think it's, it was just, it was just was really funny. Guy. I think it was a monitor guy because if I remember that D-Live was on the uh, on the monitor side. Of yeah, that. On the monitor. And he was doing some other stuff with like JoJo and stuff like that. So he's basically doing a lot of 90s R&B stuff. And then Ooh, Casey and JoJo. Yeah, I've done, I've done yeah. stuff with uh, jo- uh, jo- uh, Jodeci, Lettuce? No. Uh, Jodeci. Jodeci. There we go. Jodeci. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and Kanye. New, <laughs> new, really new edition. So I, I, did a, I did a new edition show where Casey and JoJo opened up for a new edition uh, it was like a one-off in, in North Carolina. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> I would have been right there, man. <laughs> <laughs> Felix is still listening to New Edition. He's all over that. Yeah, you know. I took when like if if I had my druthers to go out and go mix um like I've talked about this actually on a recent episode, uh, was like we talked about like, oh, what would your dream gig big be? And it's like, mm, there's two different things, right? What's my dream experiential gig? Versus my dream mixing gig, right? Like, so my answer was like my dream experiential gig. Like right now, if I could choose an active artist, like I want to go a rage against the machine. I just want to just go hard. That audience is going to slay. It's going to be a, a sick thing. There's not going to be a ton of mixing involved with doing that. Um, if I want to go mix, I'm going to go with Tower of Power. I want horns. I want vocals. I want like all this texture. I want, yeah. you know, um, uh, so I don't know how I got there. But anyway, yeah, th- there's there's two different sides to that. Yeah, mixing a big band. I would want to do uh, on that that mixing side. I'm kind of in the same boat with you. I'd want to do Brian Setzer Orchestra because you have that full, that amazing guitar tone that you can lay over the top of that, but huge horn section, upright bass, you know, all that stuff. That low is tied too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would be so great. It's funny you say, Rage. I have a friend who um, he actually worked the Obama inauguration, both of them. And I want to say he might have worked the Biden one as well. He worked for uh, C3 at some point um, here in Austin. And his first, one of his first festival gigs, he was producer for for C3. He was actually at the Lollapalooza that Rage made the comeback. Hmm. Uh, 2007, six, something like that. I forgot exactly when. Oh, the, uh, the, the um, Rage Against, uh, what was the? Um... It was Lollapalooza. And I think Radiohead and Rage were yeah or something like that and he said that he never seen till this day nothing like that of being on stage and seeing the 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 crowd was like an ocean just yep. moving he was like it yep. looked like water it didn't look like people yep. <laughs> no. so, was uh, that prophets of rage Is there that- we go that's that's the yes because no, i'm talking about rage against the machine like the, yeah machine. yeah this is back in uh i want to say 2006 or 2007 oh, okay it was Far a lollapalooza yeah. um it was right after Lollapalooza because early 2000s they were touring and then they did they started doing Chicago. It was one of the first few that was stationary. Because mm. uh, they, the Rage was rehearsing uh, 
right before when COVID hit, they were supposed to go out and it was supposed yeah. to be a reunion tour. And last I heard, they've actually rescheduled it to come out in November. So I, I mean, we'll see what happens I, or August rather. Um, <laughs> I might, we'll, I, we'll, we'll talk about this offline, but okay. yeah, that would be, that would be amazing if, if was, that, that happened. I was uh, in El Paso last year in March and my, my, I texted my brother. I was like, you want to fly to El Paso? Is he rage? He lives in Connecticut. He goes like, I'm having a baby, a baby mid to late March, dude. Yeah, it was with. I don't care. Jewels. Do you want to come down to see Rage? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the baby, yeah. but there's Rage. I mean, let's just. Let's yeah, just it was going to be run the jewels, uh, opening up for Rage, which would be fantastic. Because you know, Zach could come out and do his songs with, you know, run the jewels, and like that would be amazing. <laughs> so I actually saw those guys talking about Lollapalooza. I, I went to the second Lollapalooza, uh, and I can't remember what the first band was, but the second band was Rage Against the Machine, and third band was Tool. Oh. So it was like the first Rage album. Uh, it was um, Undertow uh, for Tool. You know, oh, wow. it just dropped. So, you know, nobody knew who they were. But I told all my friends, I was like, we have to get there early because the, the second and third band are the bands I really want to see on this thing. So the closest daylight, I've, no lights, you know. The closest I've come to listening to or seeing Tool when I was out in center staging with Tears for Fears, they were rehearsing in the studio next to us, and it was the 10,000 Days um, album. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we would just sit out in the hallway and listen to them rehearse because it was loud as F, out, yeah. you know, um, and uh, it was phenomenal. So, all right, I want to I'm going to flip this on you guys. I want to ask you guys a question that I typically ask on Singles and Noise podcast. So you each get a, each get a turn on this and uh I'll say I'll say Felix is going to go first here. Um, if you could um, define your legacy or how you would want to be known, um, how would you define that? Big jokes. Big jokes. Big <laughs> jokes. Oh, dick that's jokes. Good. Yeah, All yeah. Right. That's that's um, apparently that's what people know me for by now. All right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was too easy. All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, it's much harder for me because um, my dick jokes <laughs> suck. Um, Dang. Harder. See, there's one right there in the making, <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you're on the podcast. Um, the uh, if I had to define my legacy, I would want to say I would want anybody that worked with me to say he knew what he was doing and he wasn't an asshole. Like, those are the those are the main things in audio. You know, getting <laughs> giving a shit, like you said, and and not being an asshole or, or I know it's a low bar, but <laughs> that's really where you have to live. You know, mm-hmm. do your job, do it well, be there on time and be easy going. And that, that's what I would want is for people to remember me and be like, that dude really knew what he was doing. And he was so easy to work with. I loved when we showed up and he was there. Yeah. You know? Awesome. Let me so. just add that there's more, there's a lot of depth to the dick, dick jokes thing. Cause <laughs> now I feel like I'm like a superficial asshole. Cause that's all I said. There's depth hey, to it. It's not all about length. I'm just saying. <laughs> but Felix has the better, uh, but, but no, but, the but, better but, restaurants. But, but, if you ask him the food, no. if you ask him the food question, he's going to have the better, the better answer to the food questions. <laughs> well, no, but you know what? Uh, but ultimately, no joke. All jokes aside, um, that is my legacy. It's I, I like, I like leaving an impression of people smiling behind what I do. Um, it's how I do demos is how I approach a lot of life in general because it, it ain't that serious. Um, and ultimately, I feel that, that you share a laugh, you, you, there, there's, you can achieve way more that way. So That's, so, that's why I brought the Colt 45. Just, there you, know. you go. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Chris, man, it's been really cool talking to you. I uh, appreciate you coming on. And uh, this is uh, this has been fun. Uh, we'll definitely drop links to Signal to Noise and how we got loud um, in the uh, in the show notes. And it was really cool having you on here. And thanks. Appreciate it, man. Awesome. Thank you for having me. I, yeah, love I appreciate it. it, man. Thank you. Amen. Yeah,